Hey, everybody, just a couple notes here before we get to our next fantastic guest, Patrick Byrne, founder and CEO of Overstock. Super excited to get Patrick on here. It was very generous of him to, uh, to come on. Quite the busy guy these days with everything he is doing uh, with his T0 platform, disrupting Wall Street with blockchain and running overstock.com at the same time. Very interesting guy, very fascinating guy. We'll get to it very shortly. But I just wanted to point out one thing. Uh, so we actually talk about two great economists in this show that Patrick uh, and myself and Fernando were all fans of. They both happen to have the surname DeSoto. So I just wanted to make that clear. We spend the majority of the second half talking about Hernando DeSoto uh, from Peru. Very well-known Austrian economist uh, has done a tremendous amount of research and work on property rights, and he is working with Patrick to implement uh, some of his dreams uh, onto the blockchain, which is very exciting. And then right at the very, very end, I decided to throw it out that Fernando and I had also uh, met in Salamanca, Spain in 2009 at a Mises Institute event, which we've mentioned on the show, where one Jesus Huerta de Soto uh, was the keynote speaker there, and he has written many great books on money and credit. Uh, one that Patrick quoted on the show said that he had read. Uh, we'll definitely link to that as well as some of Hernando de Soto's books. And then I guess a little side note, I know we've mentioned this before, it probably sounds a bit esoteric, a bit strange to uh, keep bringing up this event on economics and whatnot in Spain. But um, I guess that's just sort of the stuff that we're into. And it, it was really fun. There was a lot of great economists that were there, uh, people from the Mises Institute, people from around the world that had these ideas in free markets. Caitlin Long was there, we, who we didn't actually know at the time. Uh, we didn't know that she was, she was even there. And we interviewed her uh, last year. So... It was just sort of fun. I, I thought I would throw that out um, to Patrick. And uh, I'm glad that we did because Patrick at the end there threw out a nice little anecdote that he appreciated from Jesus Huerta de Soto's uh, work, uh, Money, Bank Credit, and Economic Cycles. Won't spoil that here. It's at the very, very end. But just so you're aware and to, uh, to, to clarify, there are actually two fantastic, free-thinking, classical liberal economists that uh, we discuss on the show. The first is Hernando de Soto from Peru. Uh, and then the second at the very end is Jesus Huerta de Soto from Spain. And again, we will link to some of the uh, works and books that these gentlemen have written, uh, many of which you can get for free online. And one final point on this scholastics uh, Spanish angle, I will link to a video of a speech that Patrick gave last year, I believe. Uh, very good speech, Patrick's interpretation on the history of economic thought. Uh, you know, he's going from, from the book of Daniel uh, through this scholastic school to the Austrian school to, to present times. And just a very forward-thinking, uh, classical, liberal, liberty-minded interpretation of uh, some, some great thinkers and writers in history. And Patrick certainly has, has his hand on the pulse there. I mean, he is, he is a philosopher. He's trained in philosophy after all. So I guess uh, with that, it probably is about time to start the show. One additional point why I'm so impressed with Patrick Besides running a billion-dollar company and being a tremendous advocate and thought leader for free markets and classical economics, you know, in the marketplace, running a real business, is and this is public knowledge. You know, he has had numerous health battles. He's a three-time cancer survivor. He's had over like a hundred surgeries. It's 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 incredibly impressive, and he seems tremendously resilient in what he does, and certainly an inspiration. And you know, he just goes about his business not afraid to rock the boat 
and wants to let people do what they want while you know serving them in the marketplace. So in my opinion, tremendously solid and principled guy. Very happy that we could get him on the show. So without any further ado, here you are, Patrick Byrne. All right, everyone. Welcome, welcome to show 33 on Crypto Voices. Matthew Majinskis, your host here from Latvia, joined by my co-host Fernando Ulrich from Brazil. Hello, Matthew. And today we are very pleased to welcome a very special guest, Patrick Byrne. Patrick is a longtime advocate of liberty and free markets, an entrepreneur, a philosopher, a true liberal. You may know him as CEO of Overstock.com, the first publicly traded and major retailer to accept Bitcoin. He then stepped it up further by establishing T0, the first SEC-licensed blockchain-based stock trading platform, which also did the first blockchain-based corporate bond offering ever. And he continues investing in blockchain disruption via the investment vehicle Medici Ventures. So much to talk about today. Patrick, welcome to Crypto Voices. Matthew and Fernando, what an honor it is to be on Crypto Voices. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's a huge honor to have you. We really appreciate the time. We have a thousand and one questions to ask you, so let's uh, let's get to it. Just like to start, maybe if we could, if you could give us, you know, maybe a broad overview of sort of what what brought you to everything you're doing today in Bitcoin and blockchain. I mean, I mean, you are absolutely getting after it in terms of blockchain adoption, going full scope, disrupting finance, making headlines, uh, which I think is fascinating vis-a-vis your, your online retail background. So maybe just, just to kick us off, you, you know, people may remember some headlines you made 10, 15 years ago, sort of campaigning uh, against certain Wall Street practices and then being the first company to accept Bitcoin, you know, to today. Can you just give us a sort of a broad, as brief or uh, in-depth as you like, just sort of a broad overview of sort of <laughs> how we got here today? Much said, great introduction. Thank you very much, Matthew. Much sound and fury signifying nothing. You know, as, <laughs> uh, as someone before me said, it's a, uh, I, well, first of all, it's funny that you see me as an online retailer. I don't think of myself as an online retailer. You know, I had a I was more of an intellectual, I suppose. I did as, if I can say that without sounding pretentious, I was on my way, I did a PhD, I was on my way. Well, anyway, I uh, uh, I did a PhD in philosophy at Stanford, and there I thought a lot about political philosophy, and I re- arrived at a set of convictions. Milton Friedman became a great hero of mine, Thomas Sowell, and I arrived at my set of liberal convictions, or one would tend to, I have to say, classically liberal, because other people have hijacked the word. But... Uh, in addition, in that process, while I was there at Stanford, I studied computation theory uh, under a great guy, Etchemendi. He later became provost. But computation theory and, and uh, Keith Devlin, this mathematician, it's this area of mathematics that, mathematics that ends up being at the core of cryptography. And it was this... I, I've never really had a religious experience in my life other than that. I, that's where, you know how some botanists or something say they, in, the, in studying the structure of the rose, they see the face of God or something. For me, it was this area of mathematics. It's really a really philosophically spooky area of mathematics that underlies cryptography, computation theory. And I was just interested in it. And so here, 25 years later, I was actually uh, just reading Fast Company or something. I came across mention of this thing called Bitcoin, and I started tuning in on it. And my great, my great excitement about it wasn't just Bitcoin itself, but that this thing blockchain 
can totally remake human history in a way that like for 6,000 years, we've done things one way and now we can choose to do them a different and more honest way. So that's why I jumped on early. Is that a good enough precy? This this is perfect actually, and it's uh, uh, if I if I may ask about this. Uh, right now, I have this whole narrative as uh, blockchain and not Bitcoin, and we on this show we kind of focused more on Bitcoin, not blockchain, or perhaps Bitcoin and blockchain. And this is something that I, I would like to ask you: How would you respond to this now? Because this this seems to be the fundamental mainstream uh, support now blockchain but not bitcoin what would you say about this well i i don't say blockchain but not bitcoin i say bitcoin and blockchain you know the thing that makes bitcoin so great is we can apply to a lot of other institutions in our life what makes bitcoin so great is we need may i wax philosophical and economic for a moment please sure fly away what okay we need, uh, uh, we communicate through prices. Prices are little packets of information, actually two pieces of information, value and scarcity. That's what a price is. Currently, we have to speak to each other through media, through a medium that our government controls, through fiat money. They control it. So we, when we want to speak to each other about, say, the value of the future versus the present, i.e. in interest rates, that's all distorted by the government to its own ends. Uh, by the by central banks we need a form of money through which we can communicate that no form that no government mandarin can write a note and it can sign a, something and create a new uh, uh, any more of it well gold fits that standard that no government mandarin can just sign something and create a new ton of gold but gold doesn't service in too many other ways so uh, a block so bitcoin which has this certainty that's brought about not by an honest and robust federal or central banker, but rather the laws of mathematics and cryptography, they govern the rate at which Bitcoin is going to come into the world. Because they govern it, we finally can have again a form of money through which we can communicate without political interference. And uh, there's obviously so many ways we can branch off of this. um, But I I did want to ask you, it's sort of been in the headlines recently. I've heard you've talked about it in the fall. You know, there is uh, still with um, even though it's all mathematic, uh, mathematically based, and it's it's very exciting from that perspective. Uh, more and more each day, uh, governments around the world are taking note, and certainly uh, regulators, such even such as the SEC, they're they're coming after certain ICOs and different uh, projects that are using cryptography. And saying, well, you're just, you know, it's a fancy way of sort of getting around our laws. So, so where do you sort of square that? I mean, obviously, I'm happy to go into T0 here. Uh, you've been way ahead of this. I mean, for, for what is it, four years, five years now, you've been working on T0. How, how are you approaching the regulatory stance of, of blockchain and, and cryptography? Well, because of my antagonistic history with the SEC, uh, I knew from the beginning that I've got to keep be like Caesar's wife, above reproach. I have to be super squeaky clean. So rather than trying to dodge the laws, we said, let's try to build something right in the middle of what the SEC regulates. We bought a regulate or control of a regulated uh, ATS, a dark pool that was SEC compliant. And it's on their list of SEC compliant ATSs. And then we turned it into blockchain with uh, telling them, informing them, meeting with them, 
and FINRA as we went. So we've been super cooperative instead of antagonistic. I don't know what that has, well, may have bought us a little room to operate. Uh, I think that they're still wondering, well, they, on the one hand, nobody likes me too much on Wall Street and in that crowd. On the other hand, they do want an exchange to develop. You got all this, all this stuff out there. It needs a place to go. Patrick, if I could just interrupt, uh, sorry, I do want to get to, uh, <laughs> to your, your uh, progress with the regulators, but just to make it easy on our listeners, uh, and sort of my initial question as well, could you just give a, a brief background on when you say no, no one likes me at the SEC or Wall Street, where did that that come from? Well, when you're a public company CEO, you're out there in the mix. And I went public in 2002. I had worked on Wall Street 13 years earlier. I went public in 2002. And I was out there, say, in the mix. With You're out there with regulators, with bankers, prime, prime, broker, prime brokers, hedge funds themselves. And it didn't take any great acumen to smell skunk. I smelled skunk, and in part because I was asked to take part in it. And I went and I explained to the SEC. I did what I thought anyone would do. I went and explained to the SEC how there were these different things going on. And not only did I get nowhere, they started sort of giving me a hard time. And I went to the Senate Banking Committee, and I went to the Senate this committee, and I went to the House that committee, and I explained it, and what I discovered is, you know, like that old joke, it's turtles all the way down. The whole thing was captured. So by 0405, I was like the only public company in America, the CEO, who'd ever stood out there. I was out there saying, look, this system's corrupt. I was making a series of points. There's a, there's a degree of slop in the settlement system that is uh, making a lot of money for the hedge funds. Everyone's looking the other way at them abusing these these settlement uh, issues because they make so much money and the SEC seems to be either asleep at the switch or actually on the side of Wall Street against the public. And the whole thing's going to come crashing down. And I said all this. And when I did, like the New York Post would run pictures of me with a UFO coming out of my head to suggest that in 05, to suggest that the SEC was in bed with Wall Street. And they thought that was a big conspiracy theory. And I would explain, no, there's this economic theory called regulatory capture. It happens everywhere. It happens every country in the world. Regulators get captured for such and such reasons and so forth. They thought that was this big conspiracy theory. In 08, everything did crash. And the SEC's relationship with Wall Street became evident to anyone who wasn't living under a rock. I think it's much better now, by the way, uh, early evidence uh, or more recent evidence. Uh, and sort of everything I had predicted come true it seemed to have come true. And people, uh, what happened then was more of a. There were a number of articles saying, "Holy cow!" Even the Wall Street Journal said this was one, one of the five guys who who saw it coming and figured it out. But then this sort of cone of silence descended around me. No one wanted to talk about me because I had sort of, you know, they basically the establishment had slid its car keys into the center of the table in a poker game, betting against my credibility, and I turned out to have been right. So since then, there's been kind of a chip on the shoulder from the establishment towards me. Yep, I think that's uh, that's perfect. That definitely uh, leads into I think what what you're trying to do now with with T zero. So I've heard you say that this process that I think you just described uh, that actually encompasses naked short selling and taking advantage of pension funds. Uh, you believe it encompasses 75 percent of Wall Street's revenue even today, and this is something you're trying to solve. Well, let me be specific about that. We have documents from a court case I got in that shows in 2008 or 2009, it was 75% of Goldman Sachs' prime brokerage revenue 
and in the U.S. nationally, it was 51 percent globally. So it's a very now there is a question about what that means, uh, and I don't think they're significantly different from any of the pension, uh, any of the prime brokers. The securities lending times or the securities lending industry believes that the entire industry is 17 billion dollars. I think it may be more than that because I think there's ways the economic value gets diverted into excess profits in the, in a, I don't want to get too technical, but it's something called the overnight repo market. That's where some of it gets shunted to, but it doesn't matter. So it's somewhere, the opportunity is somewhere in the tens of billions. Evidently, I gave a speech somewhere where I, if I, had, done, I had done my arithmetic wrong. Uh, and the uh, the opportunity is not in the hundreds of billions, but I do believe it's in, unarguably in the tens of billions. And there's probably some dispute about how how big that is. So anyway, yeah, it's the it's the it's an area of Wall Street that is it's the real it's the last real business for prime brokers. You know, nobody's making any money anymore. People used to pay twenty cents a tra- twenty cents a share in commission back in the day, back when I was a kid. Now they're down to hundreds of a cent, thousands of a cent. There's no money in that anymore. The only, the only money for, you know, they can advise, Goldman Sachs can advise people on M&As and IPOs and stuff. That's advisory service, setting that aside. Their transactions with hedge funds, how do they make money off of that? They make money off an area called securities lending. And that's, that's that, well, at least a decade ago, that was 75% of their revenue, uh, of their prime brokerage revenue. So- how does T zero exactly fit into that? What are you trying to disrupt? Is it is it, are you trying to become a blockchain based prime brokerage? Essentially, that's the that's the model that you're going for, or is it much much deeper than that? No, that well, that's a pretty deep model. What we have now is a few pieces of we have a few pieces of that model, but what we are doing it with. Uh, uh, you know, we are in a capital raise, so I'm not saying anything. And oh, I actually should, I should say something. I should say it's extremely risky. The public should stay way the hell away from it. But what we are, and accredited investors only, and even they should really think twice. It's a, you know, don't, don't invest any money, amount of money that you can't afford to lose. But we're raising $250 million. And we think with that amount of money, you know, our goal is to create an alternative ecosystem to Wall Street and an alternative capital market that runs on the blockchain, I believe that the the friction costs of that market are going to be much lower than they are of Wall Street. And secondly, it's going to be all kinds of mischief that currently occurs on Wall Street cannot occur in that blockchain-based capital market. And that's because in a blockchain market, you're unifying the trade is the settlement. You know, the act of just like when you're a kid and you buy a baseball glove from me and I give you the baseball glove as I take your money, the trade and the settlement are the same thing. In Wall Street, they got divorced a long time ago and starting about 40 years ago, the divorce became, well, let's say they were estranged a long time ago, but 40 years ago, it became a divorce. And the divorce is so, between the two processes, so complete and there's opportunities for mischief within that separation. So by in the current capital market, so by unifying those two processes again in with blockchain, it actually squeezes out of the capital market. I believe it will squeeze out all kinds of room for mis- the mischief with which we've come to associate Wall Street. Yeah, and then the harder follow-up sort of regarding the the ethos uh, of this industry that you're trying to you know to get in there muscle your way in and, and disrupt and and certainly it is risky I'm sure and, and you have to do all the 
the proper, uh, you know, legal uh, disclaimers and whatnot. But I can only imagine that when you talk to bankers and you talk to people in Wall Street, I mean, the, the prime brokers or the uh, the people that are uh, even benefiting from these short selling practices uh, and the funds, they must be sort of, I don't know, are they standing shoulder to shoulder now, sort of ignoring what you're trying to do? I mean, how, how are you being received for, you know, from the perspective of the SEC and from the perspective of, of Wall Street and these banks that you're talking to? I mean, what are they saying if you're, if you're presumably trying to go after, you know, 50 to 75% of, of uh, some of their revenue, you know, why, why would they want to even, even pay attention to what you're doing? Well, uh, great questions. First of all, the SEC is a different SEC, and I'm not just saying that. All evidence is, so we started dealing with them uh, two years ago, there were three years ago, they and FINRA. And I had meetings, say, at FINRA, where there was a room full of 20 people. FINRA is another the financial regulator. Uh, and uh, it, there were rooms full of people and satellite television sets with people, all these regulators. And what happens is some of the regulators get the joke first. For example, anyone who's concerned with systemic stability is like, wait a second, you unify the trade with a settlement, they start working through, they realize that takes out so much of the risk out of the system. You've like, you've conquered so much of the problem of risk. You don't need these big capital requirements under under trading because once you've unified them, you've, you've removed the possibility of a trade being broken. So they start getting it. And then the compliance people who start realizing, gee, in a correctly designed blockchain capital market, there's this kind of mischief that they can't do and they start getting it. So one by one, the people around the room over the course of a couple hours start getting excited. And what happened, I'd say about a year ago, a year and a half ago, is the regulators realized well, that this actually has a, brings a lot of good things. It brings permanent, you know, here the, after 2008, Congress mandated that the SEC create a total market surveillance system where they can audit every trade. Believe it or not, the SEC, when they spot certain patterns of illegal trading, they, they go, they want to know who's behind this trade, that they see some, uh, you know, there are different kinds of trading schemes that are illegal, like married puts or something. And when they blue sheet it, which is to say they issue a blue sheet to a broker, they want to know who was behind that trade. Well, that it's impossible anymore to say who was behind any given trade because all the trades sort of get put into a big morass where everything's netted and pre-netted and post-netted and sliced, sliced and circumcised. And you can't actually say who was behind a specific trade. So the SEC was told by Congress, you got to create a system where you can track called auditability where you can track every trade. Well, they have spent, they were, they were given 500 million. I hear it's turned into a, a billion dollar project or more, and they still don't have a solution. I think that they've even, they're even kind of half throwing in the towel on it and telling Congress we can't do this. Well, a blockchain capital market, every trade is audible. Every trade is immutable. There's a mutable record of every trade right back to, there's no such thing as things disappearing off into some mist of netting and pre-netting and stuff. So again, you explain that to the regulators, they start scratching their head. They get automatically for free out of a blockchain-based capital market what they've been trying for decades to get out of the current capital market. So there's all these beautiful aspects of it. 
Yeah, I think I think the the process uh, which Patrick describes is what we also talked about with Caitlin Long back in October, which is the rehypothecation of securities in the capital markets and how Wall Street or and how the SEC and even Wall Street they don't have any record of how many times a given asset has been rehypothecated further, and, and this creates uh, also a systemic risk. Absolutely, absolutely, it's a game of musical chairs where no one knows when the music ends. It's isn't it kind of hilarious? that they even think this is okay. You know what? You know how it gets this way? If I may interrupt for a second, Fernando. Yeah, of course. Go ahead. It's finance PhDs. Finance PhDs. The problem is when people are in their PhD in finance, no one ever teaches them any economics. And so they have this totally crazy view of the world. Buffett, Buffett, says people have earned their PhDs. When someone has their PhD in finance, all it means is that they've sat down in a room for four years and learned how to talk to other guys in Greek letters. They have no idea of the world as it is. So they, they're comfortable with systems that can create that kind of leverage, this rehypothecation you're talking about. And, you know, another Buffett is, and Buffett sometimes describes certain types of businesses, like certain types of insurance businesses as, it's a uh, business where you're, ma- you're picking up dimes in front of a steamroller. Most days, you make a dime. Exactly. You're, you're, you know, most days, these, most days, these finance PhDs in the world of, of fractional reserve banking and, and Keynesian multiplier, magic money tree spending, someday, or most days, this world holds together. But someday, it's not going to, and it's going to be a big problem. So I think it's crazy the world the the way I think this whole shadow banking system I think the government has no idea what's going on in the shadow banking system there are babes in the woods Now when you described I think you you touched upon the the term block permission blockchain and how do you, how do you think how would you describe what a permission blockchain is and what a public blockchain is and how they can even perhaps work together Well a permission blockchain is a is one that a company is running for its own specific ends and purposes, and you need its permission to get on the system. Uh, and you might want to do that because public blockchains don't have certain properties that you need for commercial use you need to have. So for example, the Bitcoin blockchain does not have the speed of a that can really support, do the heavy lifting for a financial system. It does, what does Bitcoin do now? Six, eight, 10 transactions a second? Something like this, yes. Visa Visa can handle 30,000. So Bitcoin just can't handle it in the same way. But what you can do is you can have a side chain and there are various side chains that you do that are more optimized for what your particular commercial needs are, be it, say, processing a lot of trades. And then you anchor to the Bitcoin blockchain or, the, or a public blockchain, which is to say that you regularly stamp the sort of the truth out of your blockchain to that public blockchain. So everything does become immutable in a way that sort of no corporation could ever cheat. So that's that's how they work together. I'm kind of a fan of a of a of a side chain called multi-chains, by the way, which has grown out of the Bitcoin community and retains the Bitcoin ethos. It's a high, it's an open source project. And we use that where we can. And we're also using a, uh, the Bitcoin blockchain is is so expensive at this point to hash to. I think we're using Florin coin, which can handle both many more transactions and is, is like 10 cents to hash to. I hear that the Bitcoin blockchain now is like 50 bucks to... Uh, 
to anchor to. It's gotten pretty expensive. Well, it has, yeah. But the um, you know, since since Segwit has passed uh, last year, and more and more layer two solutions are being rolled out. I think uh, every it sort of fluctuates every week, but it is it is coming down. But uh, in any event, I, I did want to ask then the process that you're describing, whether it's uh, side chained or, or or permissioned. Uh, what is the general philosophy of of T zero then of its settlement system? Is it um, primarily a permission based blockchain essentially? You know, I'm not the guy to talk about the technology. I I think I know the answers, but at least at least one quarter of the time I say something from a high seven second elevator pitch. Well, it's that we're using blockchain in the matching engine to clear and settle trades. So there's an immutable record of every trade, every offer, every bid, every offer. And we can permission it so that the regulators get a perfect view into the inner workings of our market like they'd never be able to get into the inner workings of Wall Street. And, you know, trades trades are never broken. They settle and it's just, a, and by the way, the friction costs are, I believe they're going to prove to be like 80 or 90% less. So it's just a it's just a much better world. It's a much better world for everyone other than you know everyone in a capital market, the the people raising the capital, the people sharing the capital. It's not good for the middlemen who have had had a number of different grifts in my mind of how they make money and they make a lot more money than they really add to society and this is a way to sort of shave them off the capital market. They and them and their grifts. And there'll be room for honest people. There'll be lots of room for honest people who want to bring real value. But for the grifters of the capital market, it's really not a, uh, not a good event. So you've spoken about uh, regulatory capture, which is this process by which the main players, they essentially own and game the system via the regulators. Could you explain this a bit more and, and perhaps even more importantly, how can T0 avoid the same fate? Regulatory capture is a theory that goes back to 1971. A friend of Milton Friedman, an economist named Stigler, wrote a theory of uh, regulatory capture, I guess. And it's a theory, it goes, you know, the truth is from the time there were first regulators, the first one was the ICC in the United States, you know, regulators get set up by society to protect us from certain industries. But, you know, the reformers who demand it have other things on their mind. And after they set up the regulator, they move on to the next cause. The industry has a lot of incentive to think about how to, how to get a hold of that regulator and turn it against society. Often the mechanism is they hire out of the industry. And it gets known to be that if you're a good boy, if you're a regulator and you are a good boy and constructive, then after 10 or 15 years, there's going to be a board seat for you or a position for you where... You know, now you can, you know you could make. Uh, well, there was a point in 08 where SEC guys were leaving the the SEC and making a million eight. The day they left, going to work for a law firm, defending the clients they'd been. So it's and it's not just related to the SEC. It's happened with every regulator in history. And given that the SEC is regulating the deepest pockets in history, it'd be shocking if it didn't, if it wasn't a a possibility there. However, my sense is that everybody became aware of this. And Congress had hearings into it. I saw Congress had hearings into this concept of capture. And the congressman was sitting there with printouts. I have a website called Deep Capture. And that came about, it's almost, you know, it's kind of funny. It's an area where the where the Marxists and uh, the, the critical studies types and the guys like Milton Friedman, we all agree, but we, we agree with different language. But... 
that that capture doesn't is just it turns out not to be of a of just a regulator here and there, but the the forces there's so much money involved in some of these Wall Street grifts that ten years ago they not only had some regulators like you know who must who certainly acted like they were on the payroll if they weren't on the payroll they eventually left and then went on the payroll I mean they just incredibly indolent at the top at the SEC back then I met some lower level people who really wanted to do their jobs I met a guy named Mark Fickus in San Francisco once. 15 years ago, I mean, he seemed, and his boss, Tracy, they really wanted to do their job. They got stymied by the Washington guys. And, I mean, so there was a point where I was explaining to the SEC how I was coming across different grifts and this how it was working. And I actually got told, if you keep this up, you're going to become the object of a federal investigation. I said, what are you talking, you know, this isn't Uruguay, pardon me, but that's not how it worked here. And I became the object of six federal investigations. If they would start each one, we'd fight it to nothing, and then they'd start another. It just went on and on and on. It was like crazy for six years. So that's what regulatory capture is. It means lack of rule of law. It means how the developing world operates, the third world, where, you know, the local generalissimo, uh, what he comes and tells you is the law is the law. It's, that's what, well, and there are different ways of getting there, but regulatory capture refers to the specific way where the industry that we set up a regulator to protect us from some given industry starts realizing, gee, we can kind of take over that regulator in different ways and turn it against society. And I think that's what happened a decade ago, 15 years ago with the SEC. All kinds of things that came out in 2008, they didn't come like a bolt of lightning out of the blue. There were lots of us who knew them. Lots and lots and lots of us knew about these things. There was, of course, Harry Markopoulos who knew all about Bernie Madoff. And, I mean, we went and sat and explained. A number of different people on a number of occasions tried to explain to the SEC a lot of what was going on. And they were not open to hearing it then. And that's because they were on the side of Wall Street. It's And, and I'm not referring to the – like I say, I actually had good experiences at, say, the periphery. But at the time in Washington, the SEC was a bunch of captured ideologues. Now it's a different crew. And one of the important things that's happened that you'd be interested in – is they, I think that someone made a good decision about two years ago, is my sense, where the same decision that Clinton made about the internet was this this technology is going to take off. We can try to regulate it, but if we do, the center of it's going to be China, and we don't want that to happen, so we're going to go hands off. And I think the regulators are actually, you know, there's, Washington's not homogeneous, but that were monolithic, but there are people who get the joke that the U.S. wants to see this. They should want to see this technology flourish here. They should not want to see this technology flourish somewhere else in front of the United States. So I think that that's also, my sense is that that may also mean that the SEC is, that we've been going forward and keeping the SEC informed at every step, and they let us do an S3 where we issued our own blockchain security in our own company a year ago, and now we are adapting that into this, into this, that technology, into this exchange uh, for everybody. That my impression is, no one there has the attitude of this has to be stopped in its tracks. They understand that's kind of a ridiculous attitude at this point. Yeah, and I do want to. Uh, I mean, these are all fascinating stories. Uh, just to hear your experience with uh, some of these regulators and what you've what you've gone up against in the last you know twenty odd years, uh, specifically, but certainly longer than that, and in business and whatnot. But before we move on to our next topic, uh, which Fernando and I really want to get to with your work with Hernando de Soto, 
Maybe just to wrap this up, I think you probably answered this question, but maybe just to reiterate it or hit it home. If I was just like sort of observing, you know, from my position as someone who's a fan of crypto, certainly a fan of Bitcoin and maybe a fan of Bitcoin, not blockchain, but I see the efficiencies on, on the public blockchains. Uh, and I see, you know, of, of course there, there's some challenges and there's some growing pains, but I look at what you're doing and it's, I, I see it as incredibly, um, incredibly generous towards, towards sort of the, the legacy system. You mentioned, I think, 30 million for, for what you were doing in the early 2000s, uh, just to get that document. I can't imagine how much it's cost you and everybody with T0 in the past few years. I asked this question not in any esoteric way. I mean, I generally want to know, like, what does all this regulatory cost mean to you? Like, why, why go about it? And to go through the old system, to do all the regulatory compliance, especially when you've seen, I mean, you've seen and you've documented, you've seen some of the cronyism and the corruption like why go in and try to you know go to the belly of the beast and uh, you know i asked this question totally respectfully to you and towards the system <laughs> but it's just you know there's a lot of purists out there in bitcoin land that say you know you know we don't need reform it from the inside let's you know let's just go let's go through the public blockchain route so so what what does it mean to you with all the regulatory cost and everything you're doing like why why go this route well, that's that's a good point. First, uh, you know, as a public company CEO, I have different obligations. I can't, you know, there's a place they can send a subpoena in this case. So I've got to be really careful, especially given my history that 12 years ago that there's no love lost between me and the feds. And that it gets reminded me that I've—I don't know if it's possible for a government to have a collective hatred towards an individual, but it is more or less. Uh, I'm going to live the rest of my life knowing that I'm like dis, just hated by the feds, and it once in a while it comes. So that's, <laughs> that's incredible. I'm, I'm a nice guy too. I, yeah. So, but that's okay. That's okay. They they follow the law as long as they follow the law, and I follow the law. Hence, I want to be really careful. I can't mount gox things. I got to be. I got to lawyer up and do everything. Everything's super legit. Also, I think that we, you know, I was once a young radical like you guys. Uh, I'm 55 now. I guess I think of the, a lot these days of the story of Frankenstein. You know, the myth of Frankenstein is not not well understood. The this, this story, Frankenstein wasn't the monster. In the book, the monster was the monster. Frankenstein was the doctor. And the story was he was a young scientist who was so carried away with what he could do. He wasn't reflecting really on all the ramifications. I think that this is so revolutionary. And I know, you know I th I'm its biggest proponent. I think it's going to let us undo 6,000 years of bad decisions and do things differently. And I can explain why, why I think it's sort of a, a 6,000, it's the kind of thing that comes along every 6,000 years. But we have to be careful. There's a lot of scar tissue and you don't just want to like be ripping limbs around. And I don't want one great Gotterdammerung clash and everything collapses. I'd love to see if we can, I worry about seeing this morph nicely over five to 10 years so you don't have enormous dislocations and human suffering. Uh, but that's how powerful I think blockchain is. I think it is so powerful that you will see over five to 10 years what the internet did to the publishing industry, you'll see blockchain do to like 160 different industries. This episode of Crypto Voices is brought to you by HODL HODL, the cryptocurrency peer-to-peer -peer exchange that does not hold your funds. On HODL HODL, all trades happen directly between buyers and sellers of both Bitcoin and Litecoin out of or into any fiat currency of your choice, no middleman involved. 
Each time there's a trade, a contract is created between the buyer and seller where the exchange generates a unique multi-sig escrow address into which the crypto seller safely deposits the funds until all steps of the trade conclude. HODL HODL itself does not touch the funds nor have its own wallet interacting with your trade. HODL HODL is a cheap, fast, effective way to sell some fiat paper tickets and buy some sound crypto. And until July 2018, you'll be pleasantly greeted with 0% commissions and SegWit support. The exchange requires no verification and is truly global. So wherever you are, go to hodlhodl.com today, get some Bitcoin, get some Litecoin, and we wish the team at HODL HODL all the best and thank them for their support of Crypto Voices. And one of the regions that, that it seems to be blockchain can be extremely helpful is Latin America, where the, the region where I come from. And one of your Medici projects is working on land and property rights with the Peruvian economist Hernando de Soto. And if I'm not mistaken, he recently joined your board. He's a, an incredibly thoughtful and, and liberty-minded economist. Could you describe some of your discussions that you two have had regarding property rights and how blockchain can really help in this in this realm? Yes, I'm very excited about this. In fact, so Hernando, I read his famous book 17 years ago, The Mystery of Capital, and I was really impressed. Thought that I had a, the I used to live in the developing world. I used to think a lot about how to how to help it and that was the first time I saw a really convincing argument uh, and I'd seen a lot of unconvincing arguments so I thought he always had the answer but it's been hard getting it implemented and his answer is this that in the West do you have a couple minutes you want me to give you the Hernando de Soto theory and then why please sure Hernando had this he noticed this thing that since then that we all realized was obvious, but no one knows that it's really all begins with property rights. That because once, so uh, start with say 1849, the California gold rush, there were 850 different uh, mining camps up 850 different creeks. And they all made some informal arrangement, believe it or not. It's very normal, even in this very informal setting, that they say, okay, to stake a claim, you draw a map on this piece of paper, you nail it on this tree, and that's the, that's the, the, the claim tree. And, you know, and that evolves into somebody keeps a ledger. And eventually what happened 10 years later is the judges and the lawyers showed up, and they took these 850 different informal packs in these 850 door, different you know, areas of, of the Sierras, and they knitted them together into what became the state law of California. Well, and that's why we had this great Supreme Court jurist, Oliver Wendell Holmes, said, great law is discovered, not made. And by that, he meant great law doesn't, it is discovered from the, from the bottom up. You're discovering the social consensus that has, has already formed. You're, discussing, you're discovering and surfacing it rather than it's made from above and handed down to them. So what they did in California in the 1850s is what Hernando did in Peru in the 1990s in the face of the shining path, Sendero Luminoso. And the shining path was a terrorist, Maoist terrorist movement, you know, based on the Khmer Rouge. And they had actually reached, uh, they had butchered 70,000 people 
and they had actually, they controlled 60% of Peru. And Hernando got permission to go out. So it isn't land titling. It's not from the top down. It's not the federal government, the national government saying, hey, you folks down here, we now say you own this piece of forest. It's rather going and finding those, the Indiana Jones work, of finding those people in the forest and surfacing. Turns out that even those people in the forest in these very primitive places and informal miners on a hillside somewhere, they already have worked out among themselves who owns what, and they have ledgers that record it. And what we are doing is building the tools that will let those surface and surface through blockchain so they become immutable, they become impermeable to corruption. You know, they can accommodate any political regime, we will be working with governments as it becomes possible and as it develops. And we think the governments, we, we are going to do it in a way that I think the governments will embrace it. But what we're effectively doing is there are seven and a half billion people on earth, five billion of them live outside the world as you and I know them, world of property rights and legal rule of law. We can extend the rule of law to those five billion people. So basically two thirds of humanity lives outside. You know, they don't, they don't live in the world that I just described. They live in a world where you're in some shanty in some favela on a hillside in outside Rio. And you may, in your neighborhood, it's understand your family owns this and you have maybe a certificate of occupancy that's good in your neighborhood, but formal land title doesn't exist for most of the world. And if you, if they try to, and so that means you know, you never, you don't have an incentive, for example, to improve your little farm or your shanties and not a nice word, but with the, with the small house in the favela, because you never know what happens. Does the local generalissimo show up and say, senor, I know that I thought that you think that's your land, but that was my grandfather's land. And so you could have been there for four generations and it gets taken away from you. So you don't have a reason to improve it. And you don't have a reason, you don't have any piece of paper you can take to a bank and borrow a few thousand bucks and start buy a fruit stand. And something that I, I, so I spent years roaming around Asia and the Middle East and in my youth. And uh, the thing that always shocked me was in the developing world, there are entrepreneurs everywhere. There are entrepreneurs on, you know, there's a kid on one side of town buying watermelons at two quai a piece and two renminbi a piece and taking them in a donkey cart to the other side of town and selling them at three. And they're everywhere. They're looking for, they're looking for the misprices everywhere, but they don't have capital. In this system, if our system works, which is through a combination of social media and digital marketing, mobile apps and blockchain, we create a world over five years where I think where, where, what our aim is, those 5 billion people can get title to everywhere they live. And if we can, and we've got to be hiring lawyers to work with law, uh, governments and all this kind of stuff to find the enabling. But believe it or not, there's a way through the legislation in most countries where we can make that where the rights of squatters get recognized at some level formally, but it never really extends all the way to that there's a lag between of about 150 years between certain things getting passed at the top level and them actually taking place at the ground, we can make that jump. So if we do that, we think that we can bring the benefits of free markets and, uh, and liberalism to 5 billion people. And at the same time, to be frank, I mean, I, I worry about the transition and ma managing the transition, but it's going to squeeze out so much opportunity for corruption over time.
I share the same the same optimism and, and I view the same potential for blockchain, especially in this land registry. And in Brazil, in Brazil, my country, it's we actually have a saying which says something like, he who doesn't register his property doesn't own it. So it, it is a public saying we have here. So it's a popular uh, belief. So people understand the value and the importance of having your property in fact, registered at the regional registry. And in, in Brazil, it's funny because we have a, it's almost a monopolized system. So we have private monopolies granted by the government. Even notarization, just like the authenticity of documents or contracts, they must be notarized by a monopoly. It's a granted monopoly by the government. It's it's absurd. But uh, perhaps it's not even a question, maybe more a comment, is... The legal system will go along and as the law is discovered, and I also share the same view, it's, a, it's, a, it's beautiful to, to, to understand how law is done, it's actually discovered. The same will be done with, with the blockchain. So in, in my case, my, I have a personal also experience. Two years ago, my daughter was born here in Brazil, uh, the 16th of June, 2016. And I registered her name on the blockchain. Oh, really? Congratulations. Yes. So and so my first, it was actually my first action after she was born and everything was taken care of and she was sleeping, my wife as well. I actually registered her at the blockchain. So her name is there recorded on the blockchain. And this, this information can never be taken from this public record. It's really immutable. That's beautiful. And I remember once someone asked me, okay, but is this actually valid? Is this legal? I mean, and the person at the moment, she was missing the point. Right. Just the fact that this can't be done shows the potential for this kind of, for this new technology. By asking that question, she shows that she forgets what it's all about. You know, we create these social institutions like birth certificates in order to achieve a certain end, and that is to create an immutable permanent record of who you are and so on and so forth. What you've shown is that you can now create that record without the need for that social institution. So, of course, they're going to push back, but they are in the business of, they're creating buggy whips and, autom and automobiles are coming along. Remember, the point of view isn't, we don't live to serve that birth registry. That birth registry is there to achieve it's a company. It happens to be a company owned by the government, but you can think of it as a company or an agency that's been formed so we can achieve an end that we want, which is that we create an immutable record of who we are and things like that. And you know what? Now we can do that without any need for them. And so in a sense, they are a buggy whip manufacturer. Now, I think we want to be nice about it and we want to, we want to conform with law and so forth, but let's not forget fundamentally that And so here's this, the question this woman is asking you shows she's got upside down in her head what the purpose of the whole exercise is. The purpose of the whole exercise is not that agency, that federal, that government agency prospers or says something okay. The purpose of the exercise is to get the registration done, which you now do for free, you know, directly. So it's just kind of funny. People get things upside down in their head. Who's the principal? Who's the agent? We are the principal. We, the citizens, are the principals. And we've hired these people to be our agents to do something. And if now we can do those things other ways, our agents will have to adapt to what we want 
Uh, and I think what we want is going to turn out to be blockchain because we can do these things we want to do at about a tenth the cost on blockchain than through the conventional system. It's telling and something that I'm also very op optimist about blockchain and cryptocurrencies. It seems to me that these technologies, they are making people reflect and realize things that perhaps they, because of our educational system or the, what's been taught in school and universities, they are making people realize some things that are perhaps not what they thought would be or is. Something like money and institutions, just like you said. It's going to be quite an exciting time. I was in a, I was in a stealth company in California about four years ago. And they had on a wall 160 different social institutions that they thought blockchain would disrupt. And it's all these things like notary publics and things that, as you say, get special government monopolies. And, you know, the whole point of a monopoly, the why every businessman in the world tries to get a monopoly is because when you have a monopoly, you can extract rents and you can extract excess profits. And it doesn't matter if that monopoly is run by a private citizen or by a government agent. It's the same basic thing. It's there to the, re, the reason they want it to stay a monopoly is so they can extract. Uh, it's going to be really funny now that this, this disruptive technology has come along, but it doesn't just disrupt this company here or that company there. It disrupts whole industries of private corporations and also all kinds of functions of government which means we should be able to achieve those ends for which we form government at a much lower price going forward. Wouldn't that be a nice thing? Absolutely. I completely agree with you. And um, if I look across, you know, sort of the breadth of projects that you've, uh, you're, you're working on and that you've accomplished and, um, and everything, it's, it's really impressive, Patrick. And I just, I guess I want to maybe ask you, because I saw in December there were some headlines, you're maybe considering considering selling uh, or divesting a portion of Overstock to focus more on this blockchain side and to work more with Hernando de Soto and everything. How do you view things with your relationship with uh, Hernando de Soto and, and how you guys could really concretely uh, move forward in the next, next few years? Well, we have spun up a company, de Soto Inc., and we have, you know, uh, 15 people on it. And they're working full-time, and we've got some down in Peru right now, and we've got teams here. And I mean, we are building products and business plans and f formed the organization. I mean, we have a lot of people working full-time on this. And uh, I don't know how I am technically the CEO. I don't know how my life plays out. I think in the next six to eight weeks, I will have, I'm confident in the next six to eight weeks, I will have a course charted. That course may include divesting overstock retail, as I've said publicly for about a year and a half, but emphasized about four months ago, and just focusing on blockchain. It may include uh, not doing that and capitalizing and going forward uh, as is. And there's some certain... You know, bringing this blockchain on the one hand, the Hernando thing is probably getting that right is probably the most important thing in my life in the world for, for me. But uh, there's even ways, it's a huge advantage to be doing this blockchain stuff within a company like Overstock. And not only because we have hundreds of technologists that I can call on and say, look, I got a company in Barbados that's doing blockchain meets central banking and they have this sticky issue and 
I can send technologists down to solve it, but also because we are now bringing products live. And here I'll break some news for you. We're bringing live a product tomorrow. So we're bringing a product on January 31st. We're going to turn on, we have within Overstock a financial services tab. It's relatively new. It's a few months old. We have a relationship with Merrill Siebert, a stock brokerage. And we are turning on $2.99 stock brokerage. We're also turning on $1.99 stock brokerage if you're a Club O. And we are also turning on in the near future, and I think before this show airs, is uh, we will be custodying Bitcoin. We'll have a brokerage account where you can custody your Bitcoin and even borrow against your Bitcoin. And borrow, we believe, probably a 20% on the margin against your Bitcoin. We'll be the only brokerage in the world offering those two services that I know of. That would be where you can uh, collateralize uh, some of your Bitcoin holdings and, and take a, a loan in, in fiat? Yeah, if you had $10,000 worth of Bitcoin holdings, you could borrow two thousand up to $2,000 against it. So suppose you had a bunch of profit from when you bought in early in your days at, at 100 bucks you probably got in or less. You have all that profit. You don't want to sell it and pay your taxes. You can just borrow against it. Yeah, and it solves the problem of uh, not not paying taxes uh, because you're not selling it, and you uh, can keep upside appreciation once you pay off that loan if uh, the cryptocurrency does appreciate. Yep, we're starting. So you see, we're starting to to see these different financial technologies, blockchain based and not blockchain, and Overstock. You know, Overstock has f- up to forty million uniques a month visit its site uh, in December. Uh, probably 30 million in a more normal month. That's a uh, that's a lot of help in bringing alive this whole Bitcoin blockchain ecosystem. So there's some value in keeping together. That's different than just selling one part and ha- having two parts. And and the the value of the parts individual are not as arguably worth as much as they are together. But it all depends. Anyway, we I don't want to keep it indefinite. Uh, keep this up indefinitely. So we'll be over the next six weeks working out uh, what the direction we're going to go and decide it. Uh, I think it's it's fascinating, Patrick. I, so many different angles uh, that you're approaching to better the world and entrepreneurial things. It's really, really appreciate your time. Uh, as we close it, where can our listeners go to learn more about the the vast array of, of projects that you're working on? They can go to Medici MediciVentures.com. I think has a as a good rundown of the different ventures, and that's a subsidiary of Overstock. And uh, you're on Twitter. I am on Twitter. Yep. And I tweet when I do shows and such. So. Well, we, we will link to, uh, to all of that and, and more in the show notes. And uh, yeah, Patrick, just really appreciate your time. I know you're running to another call very soon. So thank you very much for uh, taking the time to uh, discuss these important topics with us today. Matthew, it's been a real honor to speak with you and Fernando. One last thing as, as we close it, uh, Fernando and I actually met and Caitlin Long was there as well. We met in Salamanca. Really? Yeah, <laughs> yes. there was uh, Mises Institute. That's where we first met in 2009, the first year of Bitcoin, actually. Were you meeting Jesus Huerta de Soto by any chance? Yes, yes. He was. Uh, he gave the keynote speech there that Oh, that my night. gosh. So just, He's a god. He's wonderful. I was a student of Jesus Huerta de Soto. I did my master's with him in Spain. Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, you're such a lucky man. Hey, could you introduce me by email? Yeah, of course. Okay. I'd love to go meet him sometime in Spain. I read every page of his textbook, Money Banking and Economic Cycles. You know that huge, that huge tome he published? Yes, that was one of our textbooks alongside with the human action. I had the hardcover <laughs> sitting on my desk as well. 
You know what's funny in there? There's a interesting digression and a long footnote about if you remember, did he ever make this argument with you? The one thing Jesus ever did that was violent in the Gospels? I don't remember. Enlighten me. <laughs> it was when he he uh, overturned the money changers at the temples. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And he whips them and stuff and drives them to the temples. Well, Hernando de Soto has gone and made an argument that what, what's a money changer? There weren't there weren't tourists back then. What he was objecting to, if you he's retranslated or had the Aramaic retranslated, and he makes an argument that it's fractional reserve banking, that that's actually what drove Jesus to violence, was fractional the thought of fractional reserve banking. <laughs> And it's an argument in that book, Economic uh, Money Banking Economic Cycles. Anyway, take care, gentlemen. Yes, thank you very much, Patrick. Appreciate that little outro there uh, of Jesus Huerta de Soto. Right, actually. Jesus Huerta de Soto. As opposed to Hernando. Thank you, Patrick. Enjoy the rest of your day. I'll speak to you soon. Take care. Thank you very much, Patrick. Fascinating. Okay, take care. Bye-bye.